you know you're in a bear market when any news is negative news. In January of 2019, I was with Kane in the Binance conference and like Synthetics was putting out like really cool developments of transit, like very like updates. And every time Kane said, you know, we're in like the worst part of the cycle when any news that we put out, we just see the token collapse another nine, five, 10% or more. Because people are reminded that they own this stuff. They're reminded they that it. they own it. That's that's horrible. I think we're in that. We're in that. We're working our way through that. All right, everyone. Hope you're having a good start to October. A good week. We're back with another roundup. I feel like it's been a long time since it was just you and me on a roundup, Santi, getting together, chatting about the week. I've missed you, my friend. I have missed you too, and you know, I feel like I've been abandoned here uh, because you now in a different capacity as a married man and so i've been abandoned <laughs> but we're, we're back at it so you know hopefully uh this relationship doesn't change as much no it can't change it can't it can't <laughs> okay uh how you been what's going on good you know just uh there's a lot going on in crypto as always um i perhaps starting off like i was in singapore for the token 2049 conference i've been to a few of these over the years in london I think they attract a fairly interesting institutional crowd, similar to, you know, the BlockWorks conference, Permissionless. Um, I was shocked by the number of participants in Singapore. I mean, this was full bull market vibes. I mean, it was packed. Marina Bay Sands, huge convention center, packed, packed, absolutely packed. Uh, It was really nice to catch up with teams, a lot of excitement in the air, uh, a lot of enthusiasm and... I was just comparing it to the first Binance conference in Singapore in 2019, also in that venue. And it was, it was January of 2019. So kind of think of it, the bottom of the, like of the last bear market, it was crickets. Um, And, and so it was just a very good, it was a very stark contrast, which uh, makes me wonder, A, have we bottomed and B, uh, I mean, obviously the ecosystem has grown a lot over the last three years. Well, let me let me turn that into a question. Do so. I think a lot of folks. Okay, so when I hear that, there are two ways to approach to think about that. One is bullish. One is bearish. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Marina Sands in Singapore flooded with thousands of people. A lot of institutions. Really exciting. The bearish take is, damn, we have not bottomed yet. The bottom is when people lose interest. The bottom is when the conferences are like not sold out. The bottom is when like people just walk away and and kind of call it quits. The bold take would be maybe we don't have that kind of bottom this time around, right? Maybe we don't ever get that. Like remember in 2019, that like endless pit in your stomach being like, did I choose the wrong profession here? Like, are we in the right? Like, is this, is this thing going to work? You know, like a lot of wait, people you, have, wait, you, you're telling me that you don't feel that and question yourself every time you wake up or like are staring at your phone at three in the morning. I you must I, be a rare breed, sir. I, I don't, I don't anymore. I don't <laughs> ever have that feeling. Um, but I think that's because this is, I think a lot of people have that feeling in their in their first cycle. Yeah. Well, to be fair, I think that you are in a very interesting privileged position because news, no matter and research, no matter what, is kind of like counter cyclic. I mean, it's just all weather kind of business, right? You yeah. can talk. May, maybe tell us, like, in a like, do you get more interest? I mean, it sounds like the interest for block, like, just research hasn't stopped even in current market environment. Yeah, I mean, I will literally pull up our growth numbers right now, and I will give a little behind the scenes. Humble brag, humble brag. Let's no, I'm no, no. I mean, some of our numbers are down, right? Like some of our sales numbers, like the advertising dollars are down, um, just because people like basically what drives ad dollars in crypto is when it's a bull market, 
more and more people come into the industry, right? There's more texts from friends. Oh, holy shit, check out Bitcoin's price. Uh, more people are coming mm -hmm. into the industry. Marketers know that. So what they do is they ramp up their ad budgets by like 10x, trying to capture all those new people. So ad budgets right. inherently pull down like 40% in the bear market. Our ad dollars mm -hmm. are down a bit, but actually our numbers are all still up, right? So if you look at social growth, page views like to our editorial site, podcast downloads, like this podcast is booming right now. Um, and we have like record number of downloads. That's Thanks everyone than, for listening. Yeah, thanks everyone. But actually when I did projections for the second half of the year, I had this show, I had all of our shows being basically flat because if you look at the numbers from other media companies in the bear market in 2018, 2019, mm -hmm. their numbers fell between 40 to 60%. Page views, podcast downloads, conference attendees, all their numbers fell. Mm -hmm. So that was actually in our budget. So it's, it's pretty interesting that our growth numbers yeah. are still going up. Do you have a sense of the composition of that? Is it mostly now institutional that are driving the growth versus retail? Is there a way to discern? Because it'd be really interesting to understand that. Yeah, there there is. I mean, we have a decent bit of data on some of our different channels. Um, I, actually, you know, one one idea I was thinking is we could do a we should do a podcast survey on this mm -hmm. podcast where if you like, it's in the show notes, and if you listen, would love to hear like who you are, title, company, like what you're interested in, what you like about the show, what you don't, and then maybe we could host a meetup or something like that in like New York or London. Um, yeah. For, for the folks that. that fill, fill it out. But so here, so here's like how we bucket it. Uh, retail is leaving. Like retail, our, our retail audience is kind of our retail non-crypto audience, I would call it. So the folks who are like crypto adjacent and they were retail and they were kind of just their friend maybe works in crypto or maybe they have some Bitcoin and ETH. They, are, they, have, mm -hmm. they have left essentially. They're, they're almost out. The institutional and in 2018 and 2019, the institutional folks, when the retail left, the institutional left too. Now the institutional folks are still very much in, right? So when I look at who's reading our newsletter every day, shout out Byron, really good pieces this week. Um, and the like who's reading, our, yeah, the, who's reading our research. It's, I would call it prosumer and up. I would call okay. it like, yeah, prosumer and up. Though I think for us, like we're really focused on uh, like the first half of building BlockWorks, the first couple of years was very much like bring the institutional crowd, the capital markets crowd into crypto. Now we're really focused on, uh, I just, I want to make content and, and build content that, that is for a crypto native audience. Like I, I'm just, we, we're taking a bet on crypto as, as a, as a market and as an asset class and as an industry growing, um, and less about like pulling people into the industry. I'm like, they'll, they'll come when they want to come. I want to, I want to build content for the folks who, who have already made the leap into crypto. So, yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, how are you feeling about things? We're, we're like three weeks away from, from the year mark of the top, right? Like November of mm -hmm. 2021 was the top. Yeah. We're like three weeks away from that, almost a year into the bear market. Mm -hmm. Um, how are you feeling about things? Um, <clears throat> I think you mentioned something like how we seen Max Payne. If people recall in the summer, I I, ha I felt like I hadn't seen it. I definitely didn't see it in Singapore. Um, I mean, the things that I look, I'm not a macro guy, nor do I want to spend all my time thinking or, or talking about macro. Um, I think that, but it, of course it's front and center. And so I think it, the correlations of crypto to the NASDAQ and broader markets are all-time high. I mean, it's super tightly correlated. It's one narrative right now. Um, I would have hoped that by now we would have had some resolution and clarity. Obviously, this pivot was front and center. People were talking about a pivot, um, looking at what the central bank in Australia was doing as like early indications. And then, they, of course, the Fed didn't deliver on that. Um, 
There, the things that I'm mostly looking at and trying to just understand is uh, obviously the war in Ukraine uh, and how that would unfold. Hopefully, no nuclear uh, fallout or escalation. Um, the inflation stuff, I think, is uh, probably going to. I mean, it's winter in the northern hemisphere, and Europe is going to be hit pretty hard. I live here, and I'm seeing it uh, firsthand. I think it's nothing. Not, not nothing of that is transitory. Right. And so Paris, I'm just Paris turned off the lights on the Eiffel Tower. Like <laughs> you're starting to see it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so I think that uh, my my best guess is that look, I haven't stopped my deployment on private stuff on on super early stage stuff. Continue to see really good teams. Uh, macro wise, I think is is still we're definitely not out of the woodwork. I think there's still going to be some pain and choppiness. Um, is Bitcoin and crypto going to kind of lead? The recovery as it kind of marked the top before broader markets, TBD. But um, my my putting my trader hat on, I think we're going to chop for the rest of the year, and uh, market participants are just going to observe how this macro situation unfolds: inflation, geopolitical tension, and then you know more importantly and specific to crypto, I think. Uh, the thing that I'm most excited about is getting clarity on the regulatory front. I think there are a number of moving bills in Europe and in the U.S. Um, there's a great interview today in Bloomberg uh, with the CFTC commissioner talking about, like, you know, updating securities definitions and just working it to to adapt to this, you know, industry. And so, look, we've been waiting for regulation and just clarity for years. And it seems like we're closer to that, which I think, look, no matter what that is is net positive because a lot of crypto markets, specifically stuff like DeFi, I think we're in a standstill. Um, a lot of people have just been kind of on the fence and on the sidelines. Um, you know, talk about Eric who came on the podcast talking about, look, we, we don't touch DeFi. We don't want to touch it. We're sticking to Bitcoin, maybe some Ethereum ETH uh, because of the regulatory risk. And so I think, um, you know, there, there's a lot that we can talk about in this episode about recent developments on the regulatory front, but I'm hopeful that we get some clarity in the next six, 12 months, and that will really open up and set the stage for if and when the, not if, but when the recovery happens, it will be much more, um, I think, much more clear. And uh, in, in, because once you have regulatory clarity, you have a whole host of people that haven't touched this space for that reason alone. And I think that's a very sizable number and both in number of funds, number of people, but also capital that has been idle. Yeah. There's one thing I want to dig into there, which is um, you're still investing in the private markets. It was mm -hmm. Arthur at, um, so. yeah, at Defiance had this tweet yesterday. He said, there's a certain coin nuking 90% in a yeah. month, even without any investors unlock. That run was highly contested, uh, highly contested, extremely competitive, and led by well-regarded investors. This venture market is broken AF. The token is that VC is on the losing end here. Um, the main point that I want to highlight is there is a massive disconnect between how crypto VCs and the public markets value a project right now. The billion-dollar question is how will this valuation discrepancy get resolved? I don't see valuation in the primary market coming down hard enough yet. So I'd turn that into a question and just say, you know, Arthur's saying the billion dollar question is how does this valuation discrepancy between private markets and crypto versus the public markets get, mm -hmm. get resolved? What, what do you think about that? Yeah. I, I mean, I appreciate his, his thoughts there. Um, also, what was, while the we, what, what was the token? Was it Metaplex? I actually don't know. 
Which one? Uh, probably. Yeah, actually. Yeah. Uh, it got pretty hard. Yeah, look, I mean, in bear, you know you're in a bear market when any news is negative news. Uh, I remember like in February, in January of 2019, I was with Kane in the Binance conference and like synthetics was putting out like really cool developments of transit, like very like updates. And every time Kane said, you know, we're in like the worst part of the cycle when any news that we put out, we just see the token collapse another nine, five, 10% or more because people are reminded that they own this stuff. They're reminded that they own it. That's, that's horrible. (laughs) I think we're in that, we're in that, we're working our way through that. uh, Right. there's a lot of capital in the private markets, a lot of dry yeah. powder. There still are a lot of the rounds that I've done are probably half of the valuation that, that, uh, it, you know, that they would have gotten in the last, you know, nine months ago, for instance. Um, that is on the super early stage. I still think there's some fluff on the growth rounds where you have uh, pretty large capital because think of it this way if you're a, like a greater than 250 million dollar fund 500 million to a billion and there's a number of these it is very hard to construct a portfolio on the early stage stuff where you're deploying mm-hmm. like a million bucks you're not going to do that it's not very viable from a portfolio construction standpoint so what do you do you're forced to do growth deals and so you want to allocate at least 20 30 50 million bucks and there's those are i think the rounds that tend to i don't said definitely i don't understand the valuation for a lot of these rounds like yeah you know you invest in something at 20 million it's largely a team bet it's human capital right it's uh, for years you've priced these y combinator early stage rounds between 8 million and 25 million maybe up a bit more the team is very experienced and you know whatever um but for the most part, like, how do you go from we we were going from twenty million round to like a hundred million in a matter of months, sometimes weeks, and you're left wondering there. It's like, well, there's really no reason to justify a bump in the valuation, other than there's a fund out there that wants to deploy capital, and and there were a number of deals like that that I was a part of, like I had invested earlier, and it's just a really bad dynamic because it. For instance, this token, if your token collapses, you know, you hire people, they're like, you, you give them a grant, they're left thinking that the company's worth all of a sudden hundred million, you list the token and then it collapses. That like is terrible for morale. And I think there's just an, where crypto has historically been very difficult asset class from an investing standpoint, and also probably for founders is this circulating versus total supply and having like price discovery on super early stage stuff, which mo- like 99% of tokens out there are in full price discovery. Um, there's a reason why, you know, a lot of traditional venture hasn't like, you don't have a price for a lot of yeah. these things because it's really hard to value in the panel that I was in Singapore. Uh, the question was like, you know, have we bought them? It's always the question, right? How do we value this asset class? My question is, I don't know if we bought them because it's hard to value this. These, these. Okay, you value things on a cash flow basis, right? Okay, fine, I understand that. But like, you know, valuing like the internet, like internet companies, like in the '90s and even in 2000, like takes time to like formalize a lot of these metrics, right? And like even when Facebook was doing its IPO, a lot of people didn't understand how to like social networks work. Yeah, yeah. And like, I think we're still in that, like we're so early that that's the challenge, right? 
Uh, is a company worth a hundred million on a fully diluted basis? Probably, but you know, you had a, the market is not as sophisticated to, to look at circulating and saying, okay, the token inflation is like fifty years, and the curve is very like, you know, is you should look at you should look at like circulating more than total, or like circulating in a year or two or three years to understand like, you know, can they really grow into the valuation? But like I'm getting too intellectual here because I think the market right now is in full survival mode. And as soon as you get like, you know, some ability to recoup your, your capital, you're going to take it because you're a lot of most portfolios are in pain right now. And they're, people are not being very rational right now. All right. Let me, let me ask you this. So I had a call on, I think it was on Saturday with one of the, with a, with a huge, with a huge traditional fund, not a crypto fund, huge traditional fund. He said, it is, he said, you know, the market's bad. The equities market is bad when my friends, other you know billionaire fund managers are calling their congressmen, their senators, their local government officials, telling them to fix the market. And he said, I haven't seen, he said that just started in the last two weeks. Folks are calling their congressmen oh. to do something about the market. You saw Van Eck, uh, no, excuse me. Not Vanek, my bad, Vanek. Ark, uh, whose flagship fund is down sixty percent this uh, this year, yeah. just wrote a letter to the Fed arguing that they should stop raising rates uh, and that the central bank has quote shocked not just the U.S. but the world and raised the risks of a deflationary bust. So, and 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 this guy, this big fund manager, said that he hasn't seen this since two thousand eight, two thousand nine, when folks are so kind of upset and spooked about where the market's going that they call their congressmen. I'll turn that into a question about crypto for the markets to reset. Oh, and, and the last thing that he said is he said, but I think that we have one leg down because we have, we have to bust. We have to hit full bust. I think we have one more big leg down and then we bought them in equities. Now, no one can predict the future, but tying this into crypto for the market to healthily reset, does the private market have to break? Right? Like, li- I think we can all agree. Like it feels mm-hmm. like liquids underinvested. It feels like, you know, I'm seeing a yeah. lot of funds that are fundraising with liquid strategies, like more than ever mm-hmm. with liquid strategies. I think those will probably do really well. But does the private market have to break, like this guy is saying, like one big leg down before we reset? The question is, are you even going to know if it breaks or not? I guess like... Well, you would see public, you would see down rounds. Like we haven't, like you remember all yeah, those... Yeah. Well, you're seeing like, down rounds to be fair. Maybe in crypto, not so much, I guess. Not in crypto. Um, still. I mean, they're, they're, companies are raising down rounds. It hasn't been super public, I would say. I think you or advertise. See, that, that, that That's my that, argument. A yeah. lot of times, you don't want to advertise if there's a down round. And a lot of times, and also anecdotally, funds, a lot of the down rounds are done by existing investors. Yeah that have reserved some capital for their existing portfolio. Now, if you're an existing investor and you do a down round, you probably don't want to advertise that. No, you'll do whatever so, it takes not to, adver- not to advertise it, that. Correct. And yeah. so it's sort of this like adverse selection, like it's, it's, it's difficult to understand if you actually down or like you've, you, the private markets have totally shut down. Um, I think, I mean, look, venture funding and crypto has come down pretty dramatically. Yeah. Uh, there's a great report, I think, that that, that comes out. We can link um, in the show notes, but activity is down quite substantially uh, on the private side, even though you still have a lot of capital out there, I think, yeah. left to be deployed. Um, I think long gone are the days where you have these fluffy $100 million equity rounds, uh, 200, 150. I mean, I'm seeing... 
at least a 50% haircut on the super early stage stuff, which tends to be more defensive. Like, again, there's like a lower threshold. If you're a smart team, you're not, not going to raise sub 10, sub yep. 8. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's really the growth rounds where I think you've gotten the most amount of, um, most amount of um, impact on the yeah. downside. Yeah. Um, there's also I, I, one metric that I pro- probably is interesting to track in a perfect world is secondary activity both on traditional venture and also in crypto where uh, a lot of times just equity gets traded because people are looking so there's at not, so what that means is there's not a fund there's not an actual raise that happens but maybe <clears throat> no. uh, 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 an investor's like I'm kind of done with this deal I'm willing to swap some I'm, I'm yeah, willing to sell I just my need or, or a founder too or early employees yeah I need liquidity. Like, look at what's happening in the UK with all these pension funds, uh, with guilt prices. Like, basically, you talk about like the Fed and what it's done. Like in the UK, it's actually more acute. Like with this like mini budget stuff that I've been tracking. Like pension funds are like selling a lot of their liquid portfolio at like pennies on the dollar uh, because they need to raise cash to to meet yeah. liabilities. And so that that's where. I think I pay closer attention to illiquid assets because those are the ones that just, when you see something that is a quality asset gets and someone willing to sell a particular project or something at like 20 cents, 30 cents, 40, 50 cents on the dollar, that's pain. Yeah. That, 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 that's, and that's where, uh, I mean, that's personally where I see a lot of really interesting strategies going forward. Like if you could probably raise like a distress fund right now to pursue this particular strategy. I think you're right. Hmm. It makes me think about. Um, I had this interesting dinner that you would have you would have really liked this dinner. It was um, it was a couple of folks in the longevity space. Like it was a uh, God. Who's the big longevity? Oh, David. Uh, uh, David Sinclair. 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 So yeah. David Sinclair started this new longevity company, and mm-hmm. it was the guy that he one of the guys at the dinner was. Uh, it was David Sinclair's basically right hand man who's like running the company. Uh, mm-hmm. So some longevity folks and then some like people investing in the creator economy. And this one woman who's at Slow Ventures, uh, Sam Lessons mm-hmm. thing, uh, I think she leads their creator investing. They okay. have these insane deals that they do, which is they will invest at like 25 to on these 25 to 30 year agreements with creators. Uh, wow. so, so this is it's like an income sharing agreement on a massive amount of steroids, right? Where it's not like an income sharing agreement. You might get the first two or three years of their revenue after they graduate college or something like that, mm-hmm. um, or after they go through some program. This is, you know, you could be a 20 year old influencer. You're getting a 10% or 20% of their revenue that they make in their entire, until they're like 50 years old. Um, that's crazy. And the reason I bring that up right there is that sounds good until like things kind of, I was, gonna, uh, I was, I've been thinking about like, income sharing agreements and whether or not it makes sense to put a token around a person. Right. And like what happens if you invest in, I think Alex Mez, Mezmez did that with the guy who runs Showtime. Yeah. The social uh, tokens. Yeah. But it's like, what happens when that token goes down 90%? Like if the Aave tokens down 95%, that's fine. Like that, that's all right. Like Aave is going to build their way out of this. But mm-hmm. if a person's token goes down 90, 95%, like you're kind of screwing their reputation. I don't, I don't know. Just maybe. <laughs> Yeah, there's like a, this goes back to a more existential question that you always need to wonder is like, does this need a token? Do Should we be tokenizing XYZ? Should we be tokenizing music NFTs? I still don't know. If you're a creator, look, in a bull market, it's great, right? You mint these NFTs, your fans are super happy, they make some money. I'll, I'll be, Xiao from um, the uh, DeFi Alliance, 
has a great has a great uh, observation, which is culture. Initially, well, uh, one of the prerequisites of creating culture and community is making a lot of people very rich, and I think it's right. And conversely, if you are having if you have a token, especially right now, if you're a team, like you wouldn't in your right mind issue a token now. Uh, because like, yeah. you know, it's not a very, con it's like the reason why people, companies are not IPOing. Right. Um, and so it, it is, it poses an interesting question of like, what is the long-term viability of music NFTs of creator, like social tokens and all this stuff? Like it's very difficult, uh, when, when people lose money, you know, they, they become really nasty. Um, you see the worst side of people, uh, I, I've seen it time and time again, in these bear markets, um and and people you know it's it's i understand why that happens but um it's one thing you know w when you're attaching like pers more personal stuff culture we just recorded a great episode with Meltem, you know on, on culture and the ability to tokenize this stuff I i'm not entirely convinced it's it's like it's a killer use case to be honest yeah. for this particular reason yeah you sometimes you don't want to put a real-time price index on some things and there's there's a reason there's a yeah. beauty in that i wonder ah, uh, i should have we should have asked by the way great episode with meltem on arbitraging culture it comes out on monday uh I, we should have asked her about this because i think meltem's take is that all making all markets more efficient equals good right there are downsides but like the more efficient you can make all markets the better um yeah man we should have asked her about that but yeah but like jason i don't necessarily want to know if you're fully diluted valuation or circulating you know uh valuation of your token the yano token is you know two billion or two million or two and mine is you know it's like i understand that people want to size each other up but sometimes you know we shouldn't do that or not that, that is should, that is uh, probably what it would be i'd I'm probably be around two billion you'd probably be around two million that is probably a fair <laughs> yeah fully diluted absolutely there's a there, there's a that the, <laughs> Yes, there's a thousand x differential between you and me, at least. <laughs> let's get into um. All right, let's get into mango markets. Um, yes. All right, so there are a couple of hacks we didn't we weren't able to talk about the Binance hack, but I think it's just important to talk about that really quickly for anyone who missed it. And then, but I want to spend the majority talking about mango. Uh, last Thursday, a week ago, there was a vulnerability in BNB's chain, uh, BNB chain's bridge. I think I'm going to get some of this correct, most of this correct, that allowed a hacker to steal almost $570 million. It was roughly like 2 million BNB tokens. Um, the hacker only managed to move 100 million of the 570 million before 26 of BNB chain's validators halted the, they halted the chain, which prevented what could have been uh, this huge, you know, over half a billion dollar hack. Um, Samson, as always, had a great, like highly technical thread. Uh, he describes the bounty related to how the Binance bridge verified proofs that allowed attackers to forge these arbitrary messages. The attacker here only forged two messages, uh, but the damage could have been a lot, a lot worse as he describes. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know. There's been some, some discussion around this hack. If it demonstrated a vulnerability in like the Cosmos SDK or Tenderman, which BNB chain leverages, I think that was just FUD around Cosmos. I don't think that's true. It appears that this is really comes down to just, I think it would BNB using pretty outdated code and just like failure to mm -hmm. accept repository updates, which is interesting yeah. because if you remember the Cosmos <laughs> episode that we did, oh no, they were talking about how Polygon, Polygon uses 2018 mm -hmm. Tenderman. But anyways, um, 
I just like all of these hacks. I'm I'm not technical enough to really understand them, but all of these hacks, it just makes me think it's like well, it's like playing whack-a-mole. It feels like it feels mm-hmm. like there's like a new type of hack every time. Um, all yes. of these are like well, y- yes and no, but I, like there are there are hacks across different ecosystems. I do think that you can narrow that down to some. So like so like a lot of the hacks, for instance, similar to this BNB one, where you fork a repo and then. And then there's a vulnerability in the original repo that doesn't get patched by the team that forked that repo. For instance, someone forked Compound and deployed it in, I forget which other chain. Maybe it was BNB, maybe yeah. it was Avalanche. There was an issue with that code that ended up being patched by the Compound team. But that other team wasn't very technically savvy in my estimation. They didn't patch it, they got exploited. And so I think... That's one bucket where the team is just not very technically savvy and competent, is forking code. And look, there are always vulnerable, most of the time, vulnerabilities that get exposed. And it's the where they, they fault is not up, uh, updating that, right? So that's one. The second one is really allow, uh, around um, like this Oracle problem, the Oracle price feed and the ability to manipulate the price feed is probably the number one if you look at the number of hacks and and the 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 sheer number and also amount that has been lost is largely because of this oracle problem uh a they're not using very um very sound resilient oracles price Mm. feeds um they're using like their own or a weighted one that it can be manipulated via flash loans or whatever and in this case with mango it was that they were manipulating the price of mango token i think um, and then leveraging it 4x because they, they were able to manipulate the price of a of an illiquid asset, illiquid mm-hmm. market. Um, the, so anytime you have less volume on an, on, on a particular asset, you can like the price moves much right, right. much more. And so you know they were able to manipulate the price of the token, then leverage that 4x. So what ended up being a 25 million like you know initial. Uh, they were able to like take it to a hundred million and bar, I think, and withdraw that. Um, and so I think like those two reasons alone, I think encompass most of the hacks. Uh, of course, there's some more like, that's a good point, complex and esoteric ones, but like, yeah, t- at least in DeFi time and time again, it, it ends up being that, uh, of course, there's always the, the social engineering, phishing hacks and attacks, but like, as it relates to like smart contract code, it's really these two that in my estimation are the ones that end up being kind of the root cause of, of a lot of hacks out there. Um, yeah. Um, let me get your take on this G- GCR tweet. They, I don't know if you saw this, this could just be like real, real big FUD, but um, they tweeted out once you realize the majority of DeFi exploits exploits in parentheses uh, in quotes, uh, the majority of DeFi exploits are inside jobs. You'll be more wary of where to keep your funds. Always bet on incentives in a bear market FUD or some truth uh perhaps some truth yeah like i wouldn't discredit the potential for inside jobs there's a lot of speculation around that of course um but uh yeah i'll be candid with you like i i don't for a while i haven't ventured into new protocols Hmm. for like a really long time actually yeah. Like I, there's this idea of a Lindy effect. The longer something exists, the more certainty you have that it's secure. And and security, you never, it's never an end state. You never know anything is perfectly secure. You can't have that. 
all you can really bet on is the longer something exists, then, you know, you assume that people want to constantly hack into it, especially if the bounty keeps growing. Uh, and if that hasn't happened, then you can kind of rest, not rest, but like have reasonable guarantees that it's fairly battle tested. Um, but like, look, I think we're in the state of the industry where it's chaotic innovation. And, you know, people want to push the boundaries of new smart contract development. You still don't have hardened standards yet. Um, I And so I think, you know, things are going to break. Um, although, to be fair, like, like I've, I've advocated for security. It's an area where I spend a lot of time talking to teams that want to white hat hackers like Pond No More or ImmuneFi. Some of these like collectives that are white hat hackers that I think do a uh, a really important job to complement what aud- auditors are doing um, to like just police and like be watchdogs in the industry uh, and and look out for teams whenever there's a a, a hack that gets that happens um, and so I think um, but yeah it's it's just it's very difficult now especially like you know if you're yield farming in a new you know protocol that is really small or whatever. Like, I don't even think the yields are there anymore <laughs> to, if you measure like the risk, I think the risk in DeFi is still very high. Um, and high on the sense of like smart contract potential bugs, but also yeah. just you messing stuff up. You combine all the two and it's like, you need to be very sophisticated, like full-time and pretty technical to kind of venture into these things um and the sad part of it is that a lot of people are not even buying insurance like nexus or you know or other solutions out there um so yeah i'm surprised there was a hundred million dollars on mango honestly like where's it's one of the more it's one of the more uh, Solana DeFi, right i think i think that was the number i saw but like that's yeah i don't know it's a lot of capital wait so this is what happened right let me just make sure i understand so the hacker exploited mango Hacker basically levered up to get 100 million out of Mango, uh, exploited Mango for the 100 million. They then turned around and offered to return a lot of the funds if the DAO promised to pursue criminal investigations against like some debts that they owed. I don't, I don't fully. And then they used, because they had so many Mango tokens, they used 32 million votes from the exploit to vote yes on doing this, right? Now, they, they, well, the, the only correction there is that they, the proposal was that they would return the funds if they did did not pursue criminal action against this hacker. Oh, if they, oh, yeah, if they pursued, obviously, pursue, uh, if they don't pursue criminal investigations against them, that's... Yeah, then he'll return the funds. And then he voted yes, <laughs> which is like a decentralization theater. This is the problem. It's actually like a really interesting case, uh, precedent for how governance goes wrong when you have... I've said this for a while. I mean, the, the, the surface, the attack surface area for governance is there, um, the fact that you haven't seen as many exploits is not indicative of like governance is really battle tested. I actually think that a lot of these protocols are not being very thoughtful on how they design governance for a variety of reasons. Like economic voting like this is can be problematic in certain instances uh, when people are borrowing tokens, for instance, in a in a market like Ave, for instance, if you borrow if, if say in a hypothetical example, you have everyone is deposit protocol A, everyone a lot like thirty percent of the supply is in this in Ave. Now the attacker borrows those tokens, submits a proposal, borrows the snapshot happens, they have the voting power, and then they vote on it, and you're done. 
like you can introduce a malicious like proposal or um, and so that's one surface area. Uh, I think a lot of protocols are not being as thoughtful as perhaps Maker and other protocols that have like thought about this of how to mitigate these type of attacks. Um, but these are going to continue to happen. Like voter voter apathy, just given the CFTC recent kind of like BZX DAO or the renamed of the DAO, like voting yeah. and potential liability there, I think has has kept a lot of particularly institutional players on the fence of actually being involved and in, in participating in on-chain governance until this matter gets resolved. And so if you don't have like a threshold where if there's a proposal and you don't have at least five, 10, 20% of all votes being casted, then the proposal cannot pass. Simple things like these that are intuitive are not embedded in most of these governance tokens. That's very problematic. Yeah. Two interesting things that I'm thinking about here. One is if the Mango team, so the Mango team is obviously not going to implement the vote, right? So that just makes this vote very... Oh. But what does that mean? Not implement the vote, like honor it? You mean? Yeah, they're not going to honor the proposal. I would assume they don't right. honor the proposal. So then this government process just kind of looks like a farce. Then, like, so thing, uh, then you're back to Rari. Yeah. Uh, so it's interesting, right? Like, I, I it was a very, it was actually a very smart proposal by the Mango exploiter, right? They're proposing making the depositors whole by using the entirety of the seventy million dollar insurance fund and in turning and returning seven hundred and fifty thousand Solana. And eight hundred thousand like M Solana, so I got one and a half million dollars of Solana, or one and a half million Solana tokens in exchange for immunity. That covers all the depositors, but it also pits the Mango team against the depositors, uh, mm -hmm. which is very interesting. That's pretty a smart. very sophisticated attack. Yeah, yeah, pretty smart. This is the thing: the operating assumption in crypto is it's a very adversarial environment. If it can be exploited, it will be exploited. It's just a matter of time. Yeah. Um, anything else on the hacks? I mean, there are a number of other hacks out there. Um, the question, I guess, is for the more critical listener out there would be like, guys, just what's the point of DeFi? Like, just close shop, and there just continues to be a lot of a lot of you know issues there. And I and I think I I don't want to. I think that we all obviously there are issues. Um, there are a lot of DeFi protocols. When I started, there were like five. Now there's like thousands, right? And so like everything, I don't want to make it seem like DeFi, is, like all of DeFi is like this. Yes, it's very risky. Yes, we need better insurance solutions. But that doesn't mean that because we have these hacks, like things are, like every incremental hack makes us smarter about things that we need to patch. If we're going to really build truly the, the future of, of finance rails, you know, in many ways we're playing with relatively small dollars here. Like, you know, you want to settle a trillion, trillions of dollars in DeFi. This, the optimistic view is these hacks, uh, while very painful, um, just allow us to grow and become more anti-fragile. Um, and it's also to remember there are other protocols that are pretty battle tested out there. And so I think, um, yeah, it's just it's just a really unfortunate. So you know, anyone that's listening, like, whenever you're interacting with DeFi, play with small numbers, yeah. like, and 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 you know, like, use a Horcrux model of use multiple wallets, check your approvals. There's like security hygiene. Unfortunately, a lot of people become complacent, become lazy. It happens to all of us. And look at what happened to Wintermute. Like, it's just, it's unfortunately like. There's no like undo button in crypto. Well, on the, on, unless you reverse the, the chain, of course, but like that's not really crypto. 
Anyways, you get my point. I get your point. Let's move on. Let's go. Let's talk about uh, Yuga and the SEC. So yeah, um, the SEC come knocking on the door of Yuga. Yeah, SEC is coming knocking on the door. You got it's really not surprising, I would say, because yeah. um, I mean they raised four billion dollars and launched a token or mu- multiple tokens, man- many tokens, I would say, or many mm-hmm. N- many different NFT brands and a token. Um, mm-hmm. Right, they're one of the biggest. They they are the biggest NFT brand. They did a four billion dollar raise. They launched a token. Uh, it's a good one to go after, I would say, if you're the SEC, just like headline wise. I yeah. would also say, as someone who would be on Yuga Lives' side here, obviously. Um, me being as biased as I can get, it's probably a good one to go after with Andreessen's policy team and like Andreessen. Um, like I'm, I'm, I'm assuming they, you know, crossed their T's and dotted their eyes here. So, um, yeah, yeah what, I mean, what, I think that that is it. Uh, I just still don't know. Is it an investigation or a probe? My understanding is that it's information requests. Okay. Well, yeah. I mean, I think uh, your point is a good one, which is. Of course, these this will be a very interesting precedent for other projects in the NFT space. <clears throat> um, a lot of the on, on on the risk spectrum, and this is just kind of I think on the risk spectrum of regulatory stuff, DeFi is farther out and closer to things that you know are touching derivatives and option financial markets and what have you. NFTs have been more on like perhaps less on the limelight. Let's call it that. But of course, the ape token just changes the dynamic a bit. And so it sets uh, an interesting precedent for a lot of NFT teams that we always kind of talk about like this is utility being overhyped that we're promised. What does this mean for other NFT projects, uh, uh, you know, that have raised some capital and, you know, <clears throat> is, is are you relying on the effort of others? What does the ape coin mean? Right. And right. so it's one thing to buy a digital collectible. It's another to you know, this ape, you know, the ape coin introduces a, another dimension that feels much closer to just, you know, uh, uh, well, it is just like any other ERC token coin. And so, yeah, I wonder what the fallout is going to, or the, the, I, this is perhaps going to be one of the more interesting um, yeah. regulatory precedents set out there. All right. So I listened to this four minute clip from the John Stewart, Gary Gensler podcast. So John Stewart has a new podcast. Um, and they're dropping an episode with he's dropped he did an episode with Gary Gensler and they put out this little four minute teaser and John Stewart mm-hmm. really got to the heart of the issues right away he's like why are you going after he was really he was talking about like DJ Khaled and like uh, like Kim, uh, Kardashian. Kim Kardashian he's yeah, like why are you going after these Floyd people? Mayweather right he's like why are you going after them why are you going after them and not Nancy Pelosi Citadel BlackRock. And Gary Gensler, I thought, had a horrible answer for himself. He like he they didn't he was not media trained here. It basically was along the lines of, or if he was media trained, his media trainers didn't do a good job. It was basically along the lines of, well, we will get sued. He said, we will have to face these guys in court if we go after them. Uh, mm-hmm. It was like a wind about. He was trying to avoid directly saying that, but like reading between the lines, it sounded like we don't yeah. go after BlackRock and Citadel and Nancy Pelosi because we will get fined uh, or we will have to face them in court, and we have small bandwidth. We don't have that much money as a government mm-hmm. organization, uh, and so we go after other people. And it was just like, man, it was such a bad answer. And this board yeah. ape thing, like the first thing I thought, I was like, these rules. Maybe it is a security. I have, I don't know. I'm not a lawyer. I have no idea what is a security and what's really not a security. Like ever, everyone's speculating on that. I have no idea. But we need a new system because what did Board Ape do? It turned 
all these regular like 20 and 30 year olds into millionaires highly speculative sure but it turned a bunch of people into millionaires and the sec is like we need to protect people from this yeah I, it, it's I, really yeah. i think it's the heart of the question here jason which is a fantastic one which is what is the spirit of the law yeah and what are we trying to accomplish here because i understand the most important thing from my perspective when i talk to teams that i invest in when when i'm thinking about regulation i always feel like it's it's consumer protection and market integrity you want to have fair markets and and you want to have protecting consumers which means most of the time information disclosures right um and so but other than that like i think like that should always be the guiding principle to your point what's the harm that is being done here from yuga yeah. from tokens like okay absent like of course like price go down well well that happens in any market like that doesn't necessarily mean it's bad it's just like a, a yeah. market right now the question of course is well like perhaps there should be some more standard and proper disclosures and like i get that a lot of this information is public and is embedded on chain and immutable records called blockchains that can't be tampered with and you have the certainty of to of certain parameters and so the encouraging thing just to kind of i think like i've saw recently that the sec created this sort of platform or department for like uh to to basically create the like this information uh what do you call it we shouldn't get in the show notes but it's like this information department i think that what they're trying to do is like just tell teams that have tokens like these are like the things that you like fair disclosures and and so i'm very much in favor of that i think that's a great idea right uh of like you know, when you're going to put out a press release, should it like you should communicate it on this venue, not on, you know, or, you know, and I think that's a really good idea. Um, but you're right. I, yeah. I, I sometimes I'm, I'm like, Here. how much harm or benefit have we had from these accreditation rules at this point? Yeah, I just, here's here's what here's the other thing I don't like about this is it's regulation by enforcement. Um I, I'm really happy we're not building a token company. Um, and now we don't have like the Blockworks token right now because I would be like, here would be my mindset. And I think it's the mindset of a lot of protocol founders right now and NFT projects is like, I will comply with your laws. Like, I don't care. I'm not trying to build the censorship resistant platform, whatever. Most people, a lot of people aren't. They're like, I want to comply with the laws. What the hell are the laws? Just give me some, right. but they're, yeah, they're not going to do that because right. they don't, they don't want another Howie test. That's, they, that's not what they want. And I th- I'm scared that this is just going to keep happening, like regulation by enforcement, which is a horrible strategy. Yeah, it's uh, it's unfortunate. I'm optimistic that hopefully we'll get it. Yeah. Um, just because it has become, crypto has become a very important topic among the constituent base for a lot of, and politicians understand that. Yeah. And that is, I think, the most important thing here, which is, you know, um, I think con- the more that politicians understand how important this asset class is from an innovation standpoint, from cultural standpoint, really capturing the zeitgeist of a generation, then, then you know, at some point you're just forced to like face it and address it. Um, of course, like I've heard time and time again, the regulatory agency says the laws have been written and just follow them. But I don't, I don't agree with that. I think, uh, I think most of if of most of the teams out there, to your point in crypto, 
want to do the right thing. They just don't know yeah. what that is. Yeah. Or how, or how to do it. They yeah. want to do it. They don't know how to like express it. You know? If you guys are interested in the regulatory side, I would recommend you listen to um, the podcast we did with Rebecca and Jake. We also have, I haven't even told you this. We have a, a U.S. Senator coming on the show to talk Ooh. about yeah, his views on crypto. And he, um, he's one of the most prominent, I would say, pro-crypto senators. Um, so probably get some biased takes, but that's okay. Um, so really excited mm -hmm. to hear uh, for that that's episode. Great. Yeah. Let's talk yeah. about... Um, all right, that was a pretty bearish last like 30 minutes uh, with the hacks and the and the uh, and the SEC probe. There's a lot of good stuff going on in crypto, bear market building that I want to talk about. Uh, the first thing being there are three big ZK announcements over the past few days. Scroll, who we've previously had on the podcast, you are I think probably an angel investor in them, I if I remember correctly. Um in which one, sir? In Scroll? Yeah, Scroll, absolutely. In, okay. Are you an investor in ZK Sync? No. Are you an investor in? Okay, well, we'll get. I, I want to be. This is. I'm a, from an L2 perspective. I'm an investor in, in Scroll and in Arbitrum. So we'll okay, just go here. Okay. Uh, so Scroll uh, announced a release of an upgraded ZK EVM testnet that now enables uh, you to officially deploy smart contracts on the Scroll network. So that's the first one. Really excited about that. The, uh, the Scroll mm -hmm. team's like a bunch of big brains. Uh, Polygon officially deployed their ZK, ZK EVM public testnet. Um, this one, just because of Polygon's, like, just their, all, all, like, what they've already built, this one's going to, I think, be pretty interesting to watch. Uh, Aave, yeah. Uniswap, and Lens are three blue chip DeFi projects that are already confirmed to join their testnet. Um, mm -hmm. It's the first, as I know, it's the first ZK EVM network with a full featured open source proving system, which is pretty interesting. If you don't know what that means, we wrote a, there's a Blockworks research piece on Polygon that uh, we can link to in the show notes. And then ZK Sync announced their layer three pathfinder, which enables app specific L3s, which is going to be released to the public testnet in Q1 of 2023. So that's pretty interesting. Um, I think pathfinder is the first L3 prototype that has this like ZK rollup as a fractal hyper chain in layer three. If you have no idea what that means, uh, go listen to our Starkware episode that we did with the Starkware founders. Um, yeah, I don't know. This is pretty cool. I'm, I'm really excited about the ZK stuff. Yeah. Absolutely. Look, I mean, I think, of course, the activity is not there, right? Gas fees in Ethereum L1 are really low. And so, again, I will remind listeners that there was a time where gas fees in Ethereum and, you know, cumulative, there's like a terrible website that you can go on there and check like the amount of gas that you've paid in a oh, particular so wallet. And so it's, it, you want to get yeah depressed, just look at that, right? <laughs> uh, but now, of course, people, these are the kind of developments that go unnoticed, right? Because when you think about fast forward in a year or two, three, once, you know, macro side, users will come there's killer great apps that are being built and these type of developments really set us up there's always a gap right between too much too much uh, users or too much adoption and infrastructure there's like this deficit that grows uh, yeah. in in these cycles and i think we're in a part of the cycle now where you have infrastructure really really kind of that gap or at least converging on where usage meets infrastructure and now perhaps infrastructure now um you know, being ahead of that. Uh, and when, when interest and in usage is, it comes back, uh, gaming, NFTs, other applications, payments, social, you have infrastructure like this, that is critically important to support hundreds of millions, even billions of users. So really exciting across the L2 fronts. Uh, and these, uh, these developments have been in the works for years. Uh, and it's very exciting to see them kind of uh, launch all kind of at the same time. Yeah. 
Feels like L2 season, huh? L2 season, app-specific scaling season, horizontal scaling, right? We've got Cosmos and the app chain hype. We've got mm -hmm. like Celestia and SVM, the Solana virtual machine. Um, yep. Like Frax is launching Frax chain, which is this like hybrid ETH rollup. So a lot of cool stuff in the L2 rollup space coming out. Absolutely. I think just there are there are other things that I don't want to spend a full segment on, but just kind of calling out some mm -hmm. news. Um, Arbitrum acquired Prism Labs. Yes. Um, which is probably the biggest, which is really cool news, really cool excitement uh, announcement. Can you just share, like, how much do you know about this deal? You were um, the first, one of the first investors in Arbitrum, yeah? I was not, not the first because they had raised around okay. way back. I mean, the Arbitrum team, Opchain Labs, is just thinking about scalability. They were, came out of Princeton, um, really smart guys that you have know, been thinking you about. You want to hear a funny story, by the way, about that is my yeah. wife's grandma lives in Princeton. And she's like, yeah. I'm, I, she's like, I met these. Uh, th th I met this fella because one of the founders is like, he's like, I don't know, seventy-five years old or something, or like eighty yeah. years old. He's felt, like, felt, uh, yeah, yeah. He's like, I'm, I'm. She's like, I met this fella. He's, uh, he's working on this crypto thing. And I was like, oh, like, oh, oh, okay, like, grandma, like, like, what, what, what is it? And she's like, it's called a uh, uh, Arbitrum or something. I was like, oh yeah, that's a huge, <laughs> that's massive. Yeah, okay. Uh, so. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, this team has been like in the background working on thinking about scalability for such a long time. Um, and so this deal is is a really good one, I think. Like the Prismatic Labs team has done a lot of great work on the um like scale like scale on the scalability side of Ethereum. Um well, they were like, the core. They were one of the core engineering they teams. Were one on, of the core, yeah, on absolutely. State, Preston, right? on the it's Preston Van Loom, I think, and yeah. um uh jord what's his this other guy's name uh Raul jordan or jordan I, I forget his yeah i don't know anyways nonetheless it's a i think it's a really interesting oh, Raul jordan yeah yeah that's right Raul jordan yeah. yeah really smart guys the entire team there is i think fantastic one of the stronger technical teams so it's great to see that obviously um uh the nice thing about arbitrum super well capitalized and so i think i think they found a really nice home to it's great to see very smart teams find a how a home where they can just think and have the resources in place um because again funding public goods if you think about like ethereum proof of work a lot of that you know is supported by the ethereum foundation and other people in the ecosystem but you know it's always good to have the muscle of, of, a, of an organization like arbitrum off-chain labs that is super well capitalized right and so yeah it's just really from my perspective, it's just very positive for the ecosystem. Um, of course, I'm biased uh, because I'm an investor in Arbitrum, but I still think I'm very happy to see these guys, Prismatic Lab teams, find a home with this yeah. Arbitrum. Yeah. Um, I had an interesting call. So Arbitrum, with someone at Arbitrum, Arbitrum has been like very technically focused. I would I would categorize Arbitrum as focusing like the least on marketing and biz dev compared to a lot of other folks. They just hired yeah. one of Jeff Bezos's right-hand men, uh, right-hand like, people uh to be arbitrum's new cmo had a call yeah. with guy he's brilliant uh like very 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 interesting um so that's i think i have a feeling you'll see a lot more coming from arbitrum soon i think so the look at how they did the rollout uh for the testnet and the uh, and then nitro like allowing every team to explore the te like testnet play around with it uh everyone on an equal footing which is different than how other teams have done it and so i think uh, it just speaks to the level of maturity of the team, and we're, we ought to have AJ and uh, and Steven on the show uh, 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 talk about you know 
there's a yeah. lot of really exciting developments on the Arbitrum side of things. Yeah. Speaking of public funding goods, just one, I want to call out Coinbase. They announced that they have a dedicated team working on research for EIP 4844. Um, yes. The, the, what is it called? Proto dank sharding proposal, I think it is, which is just an awesome name. But re really what 4844 does is it drastically reduces fees for rollups, uh, creates this like dedicated rollup call data fee market. Um, so that's, yeah, just shout out to Coinbase. Good. Good on them to be uh, funding public goods. Um, yeah. By the way, did you see the Coinbase documentary, Brian Armstrong documentary? No, actually, I've been. Yeah. I don't, is it out now? It, yeah, dropped on uh, Friday. It's uh, okay. I would recommend it. I mean, it's built. It's a doc. It's a. I'd put quotes around the documentary. I'd say it's funded and like built by the Coinbase team. So it's more of I like see. a marketing and PR thing. I, I loved it. I thought it was great. I'm like a, but I'm, you know, a crypto person. So I thought it was really interesting. I'm not sure how much like non-crypto folks would find it interesting, but I just, I, you like, I just, I have a lot of respect for uh, like for founders and Brian, like just seeing the Brian Armstrong journey and Fred, Fred Ersham's journey. Like, it's just seemed like there's some a couple of late nights in there. And I, I, I liked yeah. it. I like seeing the story. I'll have to check it out. Where, where do you find it? Netflix, Amazon? Amazon Prime. Okay, great. Yeah. I'll have to check it out. Um, other small news, uh, Jared Gray. Nope. never mind. I'm not talking about that. Google cloud and, uh, selected Coinbase to exp <laughs> Garrett's trying to make me uh, dig into the horse. Oh, no, wait, never mind. <laughs> Moving right along. Moving right along. Google cloud selected Coinbase to expand their crypto offerings. I thought that was pretty interesting. Uh, oh, this was, this was interesting. Stefan, uh, the founder of Flashbots announced last Friday that he's left Flashbots after a series of disagreements with the team. Um, what happened here? No idea. Not surprised. Bear markets always uh, make uh, some of these problems more acute and or people just leave. And so I, I don't know what the background here. I just mm -hmm. made a general statement. Yeah. But I my I think we'll see a lot of, uh, well, okay. The, what is it? The CFO of OpenSea also left. There's yeah. been a number of departures. I think he left because uh, I guess he realized there was not going to be an IPO in sight anytime yeah. soon. Yeah, that guy wanted IPO. What he was, I think he was like the Lyft CFO before that. He, that, that guy yeah. just wanted an IPO. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Big shout out to Stefan. He's like, I, what Flashbots has contrib contributed to the industry is not recognized that much. And I think, um, mm -hmm. yeah, just he's he's made a lot of great contributions to crypto. So yeah, big shout out to Stefan. Um, BNY Mellon's probably the last news of the week. Uh, on Tuesday, BNY Mellon, which is one of the largest custodians in the world, also America's largest bank, no, excuse me, oldest bank, uh, announced that its crypto platform is live in the US uh, with select clients they're now able to hold and transfer bitcoin and eth so mm. big shout out to bny mellon way, way to go i think fireblocks is behind this i think fireblocks is powering this yeah very nice yeah so that's all i got well i i do want to leave uh you made a film recommendation i will do a book recommendation uh or audiobook uh on my way to singapore i listened to influence empire which is on the shortlist for the Financial Times uh, book of the year. Um, it is the story of Tencent. And the reason why I think it's interesting is because I, my thesis, and I've said this in prior episodes, it's is I think app, there right? will there will be a Tencent type of app in this space. I think it's going to be a killer game. Uh, it's just fascinating to observe how Tencent built an empire. Um, and I've always felt that Asia is, offers a very good window into predicting the future because they're farther ahead in so many in so many different aspects of you know like 
finance, like people don't have brick and mortar banks there and they've just sort of leapfrogged a lot of things. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a really good book. I, I, I wanted to learn more about the origins of Tencent and. Does it portray yeah, uh, Pony Ma as, um, is that the guy's name? He started Tencent Pony Ma. Pony, yeah. Does Pony it portray Ma. him as someone who's like innovating and challenging Silicon Valley or is just like a copycat of Silicon Valley? Does a little it... bit of both actually. Huh. It goes into, of course, there were a lot of things that he also had a lot of reputation, even in China, of copying a lot of things. Mm. Uh, but uh, I think it, it's a balanced take on, like everything, it's like in this world of open yeah. source, like yeah. everyone That's... is standing on the shoulder of giants. Of course, there's like more, oh, of course. like, like I feel like when, when it's like blatant copying, which I think is fair, like there was a lot of it in the, in the history of Tencent. Um, but, you know, point to me, a company that hasn't borrowed uh, concepts from yeah. others. I read a quote. There was a quote that was circulating around Twitter from the book that I thought was just, I was like, damn, that's a good, that's a good line in the book. I think the author's name is like Chen or something, something like that. Uh, uh, I'll tell you. Yeah. It is Lulu Chen. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Lulu Chen. So Ch I guess Chen has this great line. It's like Pony. So the guy who started Tencent, Tony Ma, uh, yeah, Pony Ma. Pony is a master of creating products so convenient and intuitive that billions of people want to join his network. Yet in the back of everyone's minds is the knowledge that their every move, every location and utterance is documented and scrutinized. A fact they're increasingly and openly reminded of by the Chinese government itself. So, I mean, I haven't read the book. That's the only two lines I've read from the book, but it, it seems like it might be this founder story that ends up turning into like this story about how does what has enabled Tencent to like thrive under this communist mm -hmm. regime. Like I'm assuming they probably talk about Trump and like curtailing American oh, investments yeah. in Tencent. So like, mm -hmm. yeah. And they also talk about Alibaba and how you can oh, compete when you play Jack. good and when you don't play good. Yeah. 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 Interesting. So I would, that, that, that's yeah. a great recommendation. I'm going to read that. It's a, it's, a, it's a good book. Yeah. I encourage everyone speaking of, and the last parting thought, and I think it's an important piece here is PayPal and their terms of service, which mm. were updated to like withdraw was it two thousand dollars if they if you were in violation or they if you did like in their estimation you were doing like discriminatory or some other type of like basically like uh, comments that you were doing in a social public context if they disagreed with that they could withdraw from your account like up to two thousand dollars twenty five hundred dollars yeah. which is ludicrous ludicrous david marcus had the best tweet on this david marcus yes uh chief Payments officer ran payments at, at Facebook, uh, and also and I then think, very involved in in Meta or like in in. Well, in I, th the I think of... the CEO of PayPal, or yes. he was an, he was an executive. Uh, he was a at PayPal. Yes, he was at yeah, PayPal. Anyways, he said it's he hard for me to openly criticize a company I used to love and gave so much to, but PayPal's new AUP goes against everything I believe in. A private company now gets to decide to take your money if you say something they disagree with. Insanity. And a lot of the really good takes are. Well, if you, this is just foreshadowing what central bank digital currencies could do. That's exactly right. So anyways, uh, good, good place to round it up. Uh, it's good to be back and, and hopefully people enjoy this and we ought to do the survey. I think it'd be really interesting to see. All right, we'll do, we'll do the survey. Are. We're also announcing permissionless soon. Um, so folks just oh. get ready, get your fingers on the trigger to uh, buy tickets. We're in honor of uh, EIP 4844. We are going live with ticket prices at, 484 bucks and 40 cents. So get ready for that. Get the, Is this going to be in the same venue as last year or a different one? We are moving. We will not be in uh we will not be in Palm Beach actually. So you'll you'll see. Okay. Stay tuned. In the US. Perfect. Though. Well, I 
I do want to go to this one. I'm assuming airlines don't drug me again. It's like the boy who cried wolf. I can't trust you on these things anymore. <laughs> no amount of uh, no amount of words can disprove. I'll just actions will speak here. So uh, <laughs> you know, I'll just this is the last thing I'll say. I'm fair, there. fair. All right, my friend. Uh, this has been a great conversation. Uh, if you guys enjoy this chat, hit the subscribe button. It really helps Santi and me if you guys drop like a, a review, subscribe. Yeah, Santi's got the big grinning face. Throw throw the throw the arrows down. Santi, you're turning yeah. into a real in YouTube influencer these days. You got to quit. I know. I have I've been media trained and conditioned by you, God. <laughs> Anyways. Awesome, everyone. You, you All right, well, have, a, me. have a great rest of your Friday and a great weekend. We'll Likewise. see you next week. Thanks, everyone. Thanks.